hear the word of our God. Then Jesus lifted his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for for so did their fathers to the false prophets. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would now continue to work in our hearts, that the word of Christ, this word of Christ, would dwell in us richly, and that we would grow as kingdom citizens to be more and more those citizens which Christ is teaching us to be. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come today to the fourth and final of Luke's Beatitudes, and it matches up as a parallel to the eighth and final of Matthew's Beatitudes. Whether you understand this as the same sermon on the Mount or as two separate sermons, uh, the, the Beatitudes have some slight distinctions in them, but they both end here. And I think that's significant because Christ is teaching us what it is to be a countercultural person, a Christian, a kingdom citizen that has kingdom priorities And those kingdom priorities do not match up with the world's priorities. And so what the world says is blessed is the opposite of what is blessed in the kingdom of heaven. The world says it's blessed to be rich and powerful. Christ says in the kingdom of heaven it's blessed to be poor. The world says it's blessed to be joyful and not have to grieve and come into contact with sorrow. And Christ says, blessed are those who come into contact with grief and sorrow. The world says, blessed are those who are full and have everything they need. What, what a horrible, cursed thing to not have what you need. And Christ says, and yet, there is blessing for those who do not have and are hungry. It's countercultural. And of course, it requires us to understand what Christ is saying and not uh, what the world might take him to be saying. But all of this is countercultural. If we're a Christian citizen living in all of these ways, there is an end result. And Matthew and Luke record that end result for us with their final beatitudes from Christ. And that is 
that there will be hatred from this world. Hatred and suffering. The world doesn't love what it doesn't understand, what is not like it, what doesn't go along with it. And so the world will hate the kingdom citizen who is living according to Christ's description and Christ's law. Of course, we know, as Christ says, that ultimately the world hates what it doesn't understand because it hates him, he who most of all it doesn't understand or love, he whom they reject. And as we live according to Christ's law, then we should expect nothing different. Now, as we look at these two Beatitudes, though, we're looking at Luke's focus today. But as we recall what Matthew says, Matthew uses the phrase persecution. Blessed are you. uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And I suppose there's probably someone here who at times feels quite persecuted and sees everything as a persecution. And we'll come back to that. I think we need to be cautious of that. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I think most of us, probably when we hear the word persecution, we might think, I am not really all that persecuted. Probably many of you, like me, think of persecution as something extreme that you and I haven't had to face very often at least. So when I read Matthew and I hear persecuted, I think of a pastor friend I know who 15 or 20 years ago in Eritrea was in jail for over a year separated from his family for the gospel's sake. I've never spent a year in jail for the gospel's I've never spent a night in jail for the gospel's sake, and I don't think any of you have either. And so if that's our standard for persecution, I haven't, I haven't faced it. Or I think persecution, I think of those teenage girls in the past decade in Islamic countries who confessed the faith, were dragged out into the street by their own parents, and killed. That's persecution. That has never happened to me, and it hasn't happened to any of you. And so can we really say we've been persecuted? So. I've had people, when I've preached from Matthew on blessed are the persecuted, come up to me, even dear loved ones of mine come up to me and say, does this mean I'm not really a Christian because I don't really endure much persecution? I think Luke is very helpful here then, whether it's Luke presenting a different set of words from the same sermon or a different sermon of Christ's. Luke is helpful because where, where Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, Christ presents us with the, the end result of the world's hatred. Luke and Christ in the Sermon on the Plateau here recorded scales it back and shows us that hatred comes in many forms. Hatred doesn't always mean what we think of persecution or martyrdom. It can lead to that. But Luke presents us here with two descriptive words that help us understand that hatred can be much more subtle. And in its subtle form, you and I can often experience it 
even in a fairly uh, religiously free country, he presents us with these words. Christ says, defining what hatred looks like, when they exclude you and when they revile you and cast your name out as evil. So when they, when they exclude you. And that word is the same word that Christ would have used if he had been in a synagogue talking about someone who has been cast out of the synagogue. That's the language they used. If someone, for example, was breaking God's law impenitently, the synagogue uh, under Roman rule didn't have the right to drag them out and do corporal punishment, but they could still kick the person out, like what we think of maybe as excommunication. You're no longer a part of the synagogue. You're cast out. John 9 actually shows this. The man was blind. Now he sees... He makes the comment that since the creation of the world, no one who was blind from birth has ever been made to see. Therefore, this man, Jesus, must surely be from God. And they they cast him out. They excommunicate him. You're not allowed to worship at the synagogue anymore. That's the word Christ uses here. And quite literally, more than just that blind man in John 9 will experience this in their lifetimes who are hearing Christ speak that day. The book of Acts comes along, and as they proclaim that the true religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the religion that now worships God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the resurrected king, they were, many of them, cast out of their synagogues, never to be allowed to attend their childhood church again, to to use that kind of language. They're going to experience that. And Christ is saying, you're blessed when, okay, you're not, you're not killed. You're not maybe put in jail, but you may be kicked out of your synagogue. The Apostle John alludes to something like this in Revelation 2 and 3 as well. There, there are hints all over of this idea that those in various Roman cities whose uh, careers uh, would require them to join a guild, which was like a union, and the union fee for the guild was that you offer incense, maybe to Caesar, maybe to the guild's god, maybe both, and believers wouldn't worship Caesar or this false god, They were kicked out of the union, out of the guild, and they might never be able to get work in their city again. They might have to go off somewhere, uh, move their family into the backwoods of nowhere where there wasn't a guild so that they could get work. Or maybe they would just be exceedingly poor, only living off of the little scraps they could get from other Christians wanting to hire them. Uh, It was a very difficult thing, but the same word could be used there. They were excluded, cast out of their guilds. And so I, I think it's easy for us to say we might experience that those types of casting out. We might not be thrown in jail. We might not be killed in the street. 
for the gospel's sake. It could happen, but it hasn't happened here yet. But we might experience the casting out of friend groups for the gospel's sake. We, we might experience, increasingly I think true believers are going to experience the casting out or the excluding from the church they'd always been a part of if they take a stand for the gospel. Uh, you might find that your, your income is hurt because of your Christianity. These things are all over the place today in our society. And you have experienced perhaps small levels of them. Some of you greater levels of it. That's what Christ is talking about here. The hatred is subtle, but it still hurts, doesn't it? It's still hatred, and it's still for the sake of the gospel. Or the other word that Luke has here recorded, Christ says, revile you and cast out your name as evil. And revile has... I think kind of two sides to it. Revile has the idea of scorn and laughter. You are turned into a joke. But it also has the idea of cutting and destroying your reputation. And it's easy to see how those two things can go together. Right? The mocking of you as a Christian or the misrepresenting of you as a Christian. You know, think of the early church, how the Romans presented, or the, the Jews, really, to the Romans, presented the Christians as cannibals because they celebrated the Lord's Supper. This is my body, this is my blood. Right? That would be a scornful, biting type of a destroying of your reputation. And it did hurt. Christianity, well, it hurt outwardly uh, the church in some Roman provinces, but of course we know in the end it didn't hurt Christianity. Uh, But that was a, a type of persecution. It was subtle, more subtle than burning at the stake, but still persecution. And we can experience that kind of thing as well. But my mind immediately goes to social media. Oh, you can be so scorned and mocked and derided and cut down on social media. It's an amazing platform for doing those things and not even having to look the person in the eyes. Not even having to know the person, right? I mean, it's one thing to scorn and deride someone that you know personally behind their back. That's bad. But we've just made it so much easier. You can do the same thing to thousands of people you've never met and have never had to look in their eyes. Uh, So we can be familiar with those kinds of things. Cancel culture is this very type of thing. Now, you might get canceled by our culture for any number of reasons, but one of them could be your faith. And so as we look at Luke, he's showing us from Christ that hatred can be a lot more subtle. It's not always violence against your person. It can be a different type of violence against your person. Hatred comes in various formats. 
And Christ wants us to know that from the most subtle to the most explicit, blessed are you when these things happen to you for the Son of Man's sake. The Son of Man, whom Scripture again and again records, is our righteousness. Remember how many times the prophets talk like that. They'll prophesy either about the Jews in the end of the Old Testament era, sometimes prophesying about clearly the church in the New Testament era from things they say. And in each case, they say, these people will be known by this name, the Lord, our righteousness. That's their name. So in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake is the same thing as saying persecuted or hated because of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ's sake. He is our righteousness. He alone is the definition of righteousness. And it is his righteousness imputed to us, received by faith, which permits us to stand before the Father. When you're hated for this sake, and it's important that it is for that sake, righteousness, and the name of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 challenges us, lest we in Uh, what in many ways is one of the most free societies. I know it's not feeling as free now as it did 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago in terms of religious liberty. But comparatively in history, we're still one of the more free countries to worship in, in history. And so we might think, well, we could be a Christian and not be hated, and not receive these things from the world, I could have friendship with the world and friendship with God, surely. But Paul warns us in Second uh, Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. If you want to be righteous and live a righteous life for the glory of King Jesus, the gospel, the the word of God tells us you will receive the hatred of this world in some format. Christ says, so they, they persecuted the prophets. In fact, he humbles us a little in the way he says it, doesn't he? For so your fathers, your fathers persecuted the prophets of God. He's humbling us in that sentence and he's also challenging us. Do you think you deserve better than the holy prophets of old? Do you think you deserve Better in this life. There's a hymn. And I don't have this written down, so I'm going to butcher it. But there's that wonderful line. Should I on a bed of ease 
reach heaven. When others have gone before through bloody seas. I know I butchered it. But some of you know what I'm talking about. That's what Christ is saying. Jewish tradition says Isaiah was sawn in two. But of course, you deserve a bed of ease. Jeremiah stood for days in a well that was too small for him to sit down or lie down. So he had to stand there. Some speculate maybe it was also uh, so shallow with uh, some kind of grate over the top that he had to kind of crouch halfway between sitting and standing. Whether it's that or whether just standing, imagine weeks on end of not being able to lie down or sit down with water and mud around your feet for the gospel's sake. Later, when he was set free, he, he prophesied from God, all who run to Egypt will die. And Israel said, you're coming with us. So he died. These died. These suffered. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. His friends into a fiery furnace. John the Baptist was beheaded. They all enter glory through bloody seas. But do you deserve a bed of ease? That's what Christ is saying. But of course, later he's going to say it even more strongly. Because maybe our ego is so great that we think we do deserve that bed of ease. And so later Christ will say, the night he was betrayed, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Do you deserve the world to love you when it hated Christ? Should your life be easy for the gospel's sake when Christ, who is the heart of the gospel, the one the gospel is all about, suffered and was hated, healed people, and they turned around and rejected him? Raised people from the dead and people who saw all the evidence for it took him to the cross. Do you deserve the love of this world? That's what Christ is asking. And we need to be prepared and examine ourselves because the reverse isn't great. Woe or cursed are you when all men speak well of you for so did their fathers to the prophets, the false prophets. Do you want to be like the false prophets? Remember what God said of the false prophets. Remember what God had done to the false prophets. Remember Elijah at Mount Carmel? Drag them away and burn them. And Christ makes it very clear, indeed, In the Sermon on the Mount itself, Christ makes it more clear than anywhere else in Scripture. 
the wailing, the gnashing of teeth, the eternal flame that will be endured by all those who follow the false prophets and have the love of the world, but not the love of God. So we need to take this very seriously. And we also need to be prepared. But all this being said, I also want to add caution. And here I'm really going to lean heavily on Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this from his wonderful volume on the Sermon on the Mount because he gets at this so, this so well, this caution, that within the church far too often we have the wrong understanding of this beatitude. We read only part of the beatitude and then we insert our own cause. So we might, for example, in the church sometimes think we're being blessed because we are being persecuted as Christians who seriously lack wisdom and are really foolish and unwise with regard to our testimony. Is that what Christ blesses? Um, I'm, I, I was reflecting this morning. I think I'm allowed to say now I'm no longer in the young category here. I know I'm not in the old category yet. And I am younger than some of you. But I'm no longer in the young category. I've reached that point. And as I reflect back, one thing that strikes me as I also look at the church, I think typically older believers and younger believers are attracted to uh, the, the different wrong influences. I won't speak to the older ones of you right now, but I think when we're younger, we're often attracted to the wrong influences, uh, to influences that can be snide and sarcastic and caustic and rude in their presentation of the gospel. The society is like that, and it just feels like this person's really getting the comeback on the society. And so we, we are attracted to that as young people. We, we can think it's zeal for the Lord, right? Ah, look at that. Not going not gonna to let the world get away with it. Uh, and yet, how often do you hear that people were, were led to Christ by a snarky presentation of the gospel? And there's far too much of that. And I think that's using, using more polite language. I think that's what Loie Jones is getting at when he says that sometimes we true Christians suffer hatred from the world, not because we've been righteous, but because we've been foolish in how we present the gospel. Because we've been rude in how we presented the gospel. Another way Lois Jones gets at this is talking about being fanatical. The beatitude is not blessed are those who are persecuted because they're fanatics. The New Testament never, Lois Jones writes this, the New Testament never 
commends fanaticism. It commends zeal. And we would do well to know the difference. Because there is a difference between righteous zeal and zealous fanaticism. Being persecuted for a cause, being overzealous, being ungracious. And so often we're all of these things. And when the world hates us for these things, we don't get to claim brownie points in heaven for acting like this. We need to be on guard. We need to be cautious. Taking it one step further, Loe Jones says, it is not that we are blessed who are persecuted because we are doing something wrong. Like sinning. I, I can't speak to any one of you, but I know there are times... When, years back when I thought I was being hated as a Christian and what the person hated was my hypocrisy. It wasn't righteousness. It was my hypocrisy. One of my dearest friends, I lost that friend because he saw that my Christianity and something in my lifestyle didn't match up. And he was just done with it. And and looking back, I cannot say I lost that friend for the gospel. The gospel wasn't why he didn't like me. He liked me fine at one point. It was my sin, which hypocritically tainted the gospel in his eyes. We read about this from Peter earlier in the service, 1 Peter 4. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. And then I I love Peter because lest we think so superior, I've never murdered anyone. I've never robbed a bank. He says, or for being a busybody. Getting in on other people's affairs when you shouldn't have. Let none of us suffer for being a busybody in other people's affairs. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Beloved, we need to be cautious about the cause of the hatred we receive. Is it for Jesus' sake? Is it because of his righteousness lived out in us? Then, then we can know that our God is blessing us even in that moment. Well, then I I want to close with some encouragements on ways to pursue peace in affliction. It's one thing to be told we're blessed when we're afflicted for righteousness sake, hated for righteousness sake. It is hard to be at peace over that and through that. This last week I came across a a Puritan quote, take a saint, put him in any condition and he knows how to rejoice in the Lord. Now I didn't read the context. I just saw that sentence. I hope the context was better than the sentence. Because I wonder what church he was going to 
If I took any saint in this room and plopped you down in any circumstance, you would know how to rejoice in the Lord. I'm sure some of you would do a great job. And I'm sure some of the rest of us, myself included, would not. But we should. So if we're going to be content rejoicing in the Lord in any condition, what are some ways we can pursue this in our hearts? First, in the midst of being hated by the world, I think the first thing we need to do is remember what you deserve. What is the first thing we tend to do when we're feeling hated? We tend to think, I don't deserve this. And and you know what? Sometimes maybe you don't. If you're being persecuted for righteousness sake, that probably indicates that they're attacking you even though you've loved them. But is that going to help you in the midst of it all to think, I don't deserve this. No, beloved, we should be thinking, remember, remember what I deserve. I deserve God's wrath and curse, both in this life, right now, and in the one to come for all eternity. That's what I deserve if left to myself. But in Christ, in Christ, I will never experience that. Which means that whatever you do experience in this life is the worst it will ever be. Some of that will be suffering because of your sin, earthly consequences. Some of it will be hatred for the gospel's sake. But even that is the worst it will ever be. And if you remember, I deserve hell. This isn't hell. The world and sometimes Christians are far too quick to say that was hell. It wasn't. And if you're in Christ, it never will be for you. Oh, what you can endure now if you know that there is no hell to come. John Trapp, another Puritan, put it like this, better to be pruned to grow than to be cut down and burned. That's the hatred you're receiving in this life. God will use it in pruning you so that you might grow more healthy than before in righteousness. Far better to experience that painful cutting, pruning now than to be cut down and burned then. Secondly, if we're going to have peace through the world's hatred, I think we need to think about what others will suffer if I hide to escape persecution or if I look like the world to avoid their hatred. When the world is hating us, it's easy to feel, I don't deserve this, and to view the world. Let's stop, let me stop saying the world. I mean, that's New Testament, that's biblical. But let's make it more personal. Your friend. 
your family member who now hates you, your neighbor who hates you for the gospel, your child, maybe, who hates you for the gospel. That's a lot more personal, isn't it? And if we reflect what the unbeliever will one day suffer, if I don't present the gospel to them, even in suffering. I, you read stories in the early church of people, and I, I think we need to have a lot of graciousness for these individuals. In the Roman world, who were brought before the magistrate, say Caesar is Lord, and they chickened out. Instead of saying Jesus alone is Lord, they said Caesar is Lord. And later they repented. But I've never heard any stories of people coming to Christ because that person said what the magistrate wanted to hear. But you do hear those stories like the believers pushed out on a frozen lake in the middle of winter to die there in the middle of the night naked. And soldiers taking off their clothes and joining them. When you're experiencing the hatred of the world, of your loved one, you might find peace by reflecting that even this, how you receive this persecution now, may be part of their story of salvation. But hiding won't be. Escaping won't be. I'm not saying never flee for your life under violence. That's not what I'm saying. Understand that. So, remember what we deserve. I deserve hell. Remember what the person who hates you will suffer if they, if they don't also come to Christ. Third, remember that you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Ah, here it is, isn't it? This is the best one. Remember, says Paul, that you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ suffered so you never have to experience hell, and yet the New Testament, in multiple cases, speaks of the suffering we have for righteousness' sake, being us being united to Jesus Christ in his sufferings. We read that in 1 Peter. We also hear it twice from Paul, Philippians 3, verse 10, that I might know him, says Paul. This is his desire, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. We say amen to that and may share his sufferings. And isn't there a little part of you that says, whoa, Paul, let's not go overboard. I, I, wanna, uh, I want to know the power of his resurrection without sharing in his sufferings. But Paul says, no, our desire should be that we may share in his sufferings, being, becoming like him in his death. 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Remembering that you are sharing in Christ's sufferings will bring, Paul says, consolation. 
in the midst of hatred, in the midst of pain. And fourth, remember the reward. The reward shouldn't be our main focus in the Beatitudes, but we shouldn't neglect it. Blessed are those who are hated for the Son of Man's sake, for great will be your reward. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the reward isn't described because you and I couldn't, couldn't comprehend it if it was. There's certainly something to that. But what is told us in Scripture clearer than anything else about the reward we'll have? I think the best sentence to describe our reward is this. We will forever be with the Lord. Poverty, hunger, grief, hatred, all wiped away by his precious hand. And we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And we will experience the wedding feast of the Lamb. Not not just that we won't experience hell, that's a good thing for us to remember, but bringing it full circle that we will experience heaven, Christ, Christ, to be with the Lamb, infinitely, gloriously, joyful, perfect, for all eternity, for we will forever be with the Lord. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward will be great in heaven. Thanks be to God.